And here is the Miles Davis Quintet making what is amazing enough his very first television appearance. Miles Davis and the Quintet. Welcome to the second episode of, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. It's uh, not the Miles Davis podcast. It might be slightly puzzling as to why we're hearing that at the beginning, at the top of the show. There's a good reason for it. That is a an archival recording from the 2nd of November 1969, the very night at Ronnie Scott's where Steve Brown brought Elton John along to meet Paul Buckmaster for the first time. I would love to see what that whole event looked like. Um, there is some footage, there's some uh, video footage, but it's very grainy and it's just of the um, Miles Davis himself. But yeah, that happened. That was a pretty evocative setting to a very important day in both of their careers, certainly in Elton's career, because it changed his sound completely. My intention today had been to celebrate some of those uh, arrangements and to have a listen to Buckmaster's contribution to the records over the, over the years the early years in particular and uh, maybe to get a picture of who Buckmaster was as a musician but as I found out more the more interested I became in his early years so that's what I've done I've broken it down this is part one I guess of the Paul Buckmaster story um, and other stuff will follow later on but we're going to go up to 1970 here um starting at the beginning then paul buckmaster picked up the cello now how do you pick up the cello at the age of four i don't know but he did something along those lines maybe i mean if you're a four-year-old and you pick up a viola that's similar to picking up a cello i'm not sure anyway he started playing stringed instruments very young he came from a musical family he got scholarships left right and center ended up at the Royal Academy of Music, where he graduated in 67. He's a year older than Elton. Um, but I don't think their paths crossed. Not according to anything I've read, anyway. So he came out of the Royal Academy of Music, um, and his first gig as a cello player was in the touring band for Paul Jones. He had been the lead singer for Manfred Mann. He'd struck out for Solo Glory. I don't think it worked out for him. But yeah, he toured with him for a while. And then early 68, he was... So January in 68, he was he got a job touring with the Bee Gees um, in Europe. And they recorded with Buckmaster later on that year. So there's the, one of the earliest recordings that exists of Buckmaster is um, a solo from the song Odessa from their double album Odessa which was released in 69 but was recorded in late 68 so let's have a listen to that
He sounds quite balmy in places here, does Buckmaster. Um, he, he was a big fan of Baroque music as a youngster. Um, but by this time, he was already deeply into jazz music. Uh, it's difficult for me to make much of a comment on his cello playing. He's a very smooth player. He has a lovely sort of warm, sticky tone out of the cello. So there's two parallel lines here. We've got Buckmaster as a cellist and we've got Buckmaster as an arranger. And he is not the latter. He didn't have any of those skills at this stage. He met Gus Dudgeon at a session for the American singer and actress Marsha Hunt. She had a, a really minor role in Hair in the actual performance, just a few lines. Um, but she had an extremely major role in the promotion because it was her picture that was all over the uh, posters and the ad- advertisements for Hair. And uh, a little after this, she uh, was... I don't, I'm not, don't know exactly know how they met, but she met Mick Jagger and they became boyfriend and girlfriend. And he wrote the lyric Brown Sugar about her, apparently, according to her. But anyway, let's have a listen to the song that came out of that session, which um, was run by Gus. It's called Hot Rod Popper. It's a song by Mark Bolan. Uh, I don't think it was ever recorded by anyone else. It's produced by Gus. It was arranged by Tony Visconti. And it was released as the B-side to her single Walk on Gilded Splinters. Um, I think it was sampled by uh, Paul Weller. I can't remember what song on, but it's one of those things that uh, was pretty much forgotten for a long time. It sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely amazing. It was released... Um, in 69 it came out on Polydor across most of the world but it was on track record I don't know who they are in the UK I played the beginning of that track it's so energetic there are some strings I think towards the end of the song um, but they're really low in the mix and I'm not even sure if Buckmaster actually played at this session he was invited by someone from the Bee Gees band the trombonist apparently he might have just gone along and met Gus and Tony Um, and I think Gus was interested in this figure with his curly long curly hair his little thin moustache Stuart Epps who we'll talk about later on um, said that he looked like one of the three musketeers musketeers shows you my level of cultural knowledge doesn't it anyway uh, by the way I've got a cat on my lap and he might he's probably going to make some sound I don't know he's giving me that look right anyway Gus did a good thing at that stage. He introduced him to who would become Buckmaster's future manager, Tony Hall. Not that Tony Hall, um, but he is involved in radio. He's a radio Luxembourg DJ, DJ, a jazz fan, and later on he became a promotions man. This man is really pivotal in the story. And 
it seems that Tony Hall challenged him really and said, "Look at Visconti, you could do that," and uh, he gave him some demos to work on. Uh, the details of what they are is lost to time, but it wasn't long before um, he was having a go at doing his own arrangements. Um, he passed some of the work um, onto Visconti's desk, uh, who made some comments and gave him some help. So with a bit of a push from Tony Hall and some mentorship from Tony Visconti, um, he got on with making some arrangements. Uh, it's worth mentioning that doing arranging is not just a case of writing some... make it sound dead easy. It's not just a case of writing some string parts. It, in those days, and I suppose now, it involved orchestrating the whole recording. So knowing what the drums were doing when, or writing out the bass part completely, arranging the backing vocals, arranging the strings and the horns and guitar. Everything had to be written, and which is a massive undertaking for someone who doesn't really know how to notate for other musicians. He was, he was still learning on the job and he did learn on the job. So the two Tonys really pushed him into it. And one of the first things he did, one of the first things he arranged, was actually a number eight hit for a Liverpudlian band called Arrival. And this is their song, Friends. already hear that distinctive drama that buckmaster drama coming through his uh, his parts are pretty interesting he's still involved as a session um cellist one of the projects he was involved in came out on harvest around about 69 it was an album by the folk musician michael chapman um and he was playing alongside mick ronson in those those sessions um i've really enjoyed researching this um episode of the podcast and I have to say that this early work from Michael Chapman is definitely the best thing I've found in this process. I love this. Let's have a listen to Aviator from the 1970 album Fully Qualified Survivor. And the music is so loud that I have lost all sense of time. The phone rings. But no one makes a sound The stones are falling on the roof And smashing all the tiles And the banners are waltzing round and round To take my time away 
it's just beautiful. Um, that whole album has a wonderful sound. I don't think it's very wide, or maybe I'm just ignorant, but I don't think it's a widely known release. It, it's supposedly um, Chapman's one of Chapman's better albums from that early period. But the man released a lot of music. So, back to arranging. Uh, we're still in 69. I think that took a while to come out, that album. I'm not really sure. But anyway, back in 69, Buckmaster arranged and conducted a whole album for a band called Sounds Nice, who were built around the organist Tim Mycroft. Um, they brought out an album and a couple of singles on Parlophone in 1969. Um, and this is in a genre described as UK mod, exotic, freak beat, instro hipster. This stuff is deeply loungy. I'm sure it served its purpose in the day and it would have graced the record player of many a bachelor pad. Uh, it involved a cover of Hits of the Day. We have a cover of Je t'aime mon, moi non plus. And uh, without the heavy breathing. Although there is, weirdly, another song which was written by Buckmaster which did have a bunch of heavy breathing in it. Um, there, there are a few Buckmaster originals here, but that's not what I'm going to feature. Instead of hearing those, let's have a listen to Buckmaster's arrangement for the song King Kong by Frank Zappa. Oh yes, another Elton John Zappa connection. that one the cat's got up and left crikey so that's what uk mod exotic freak beat intro hipster music sounds like who knew uh, um anyway so buckmaster was still playing in a range of bands as a cellist he was uh, he recorded a couple of tracks with alex harvey he played cello in the first Quatermass album, um, which featured his Royal Academy of Music contemporary John Peter Robinson on keyboards. And uh, both Buckmaster and Robinson were involved in a band called The Hill, who came to be the backing band for a blues singer called Chris Farlow. So this is where the story starts to develop. Here's a song off of their 1969 album, which um, the song's called Questions. Sarah. 
So we can hear they're pretty heavy for a band that features a cello. Um, they also got into jazz. According to Buckmaster, Farlow once failed to turn up for a session. So the band got into some sort of improvisation to fill the book session time. One of these uh, was called Joint Effort. And it was this recording that Buckmaster played to Miles Davis when he got, a, got the chance to meet him in 1969. This was via Tony Hall. The story is that Buckmaster was trying desperately to get to watch um, Miles Davis at the Festival Hall. Um, Couldn't get tickets. It was sold out instantly. Um, But (laughs) I spoke to his manager who said, oh, yeah, no, I know him really well. He contacts me all the time. So he easily got a ticket um, and spent some time at, I guess, not the house, but um, the hotel of Miles Davis before and that would have been on the 2nd of November before going on to the Ronnie Scott's gig now unfortunately there's no way of getting hold of that recording I'd love to have heard it because it 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 did lead to two things one was that uh, that evening was it was that evening um, at Ronnie Scott's Paul Buckmaster was found on Miles Davis's table which must have been very impressive for Elton John who knows what he thought of the night in general but surely he was impressed by the fact that he was a personal guest of Miles Davis and the second thing is that it led to some sessions that happened in 1972 for the album On the Corner um, that happened in America and it featured Paul Buckmaster and Miles Davis so in lieu of listening to um, Joint Effort let's have a listen to On the Corner from find any uh, um, electric cello on there there is some mention of uh, Buckmaster playing the cello on that album but uh, I don't think I I looked I couldn't find it however I did find a very interesting recording I've tried in the past to get into Miles Davis I like the 
Gil Evans stuff, the really nice, thoroughly arranged music that they did earlier than this. Um, I've tried to listen to Bitches Brew. I don't really get it. But this, this I can appreciate. I quite enjoyed it. So although he didn't play, according to Buckmaster, he made lots of contributions. Um, he suggested the use of a particular keyboard, the Yamaha YC45, um, to Davis. And he, it was his idea to combine what he described as strange space music from that keyboard with street sounds and... The, the you know you can hear what there's a sitar in there so there's an there's a lot of it's coming at it from quite a lot of different angles that album's been described since I, at the time it was disliked quite uh, thoroughly by critics but it's been reappraised and it's been described since as being the great great grandfather of hip hop so that's a pretty cool thing although the jazz connection may seem like a massive diversion that there there is the fact that uh, it was the backdrop to that meeting as i keep going on about anyway back to the story back to elton land there's a really interesting demo knocking around of take me to the pilot um it's not on any of the reissues um it represents a transitional stage for elton after empty sky steve brown having a crack at recording a few, only one of them survives, um, which is this Take Me To The Pilot, having a crack at recording Elton and the band knocking their way through it. And I say the band, it's Hookfoot. Um, they sound like they're doing the song no favours whatsoever. I'll play it another time. Um, but I think out of that process, they had a good listen to it and they decided that Steve didn't have, or Steve himself decided that he didn't have the chops to record the next album and get what Elton was doing on tape in the in the manner that that it deserved and so they started looking for a producer and an arranger and uh, according to Stuart Epps Stuart Epps is the uh, was the later on became a tape engineer at that sort of time he was an assistant at DJM working alongside Steve Brown and working alongside Stephen uh, James, he says that uh, that Brown started to approach some producers. One that he remembers is Denny Cordell. He produced The Move. He produced Bo- Proko Harum, Joe Cocker, Leon Russell, and Spooky Tooth, for that matter. Um, he will have turned it down. Buckmaster says that Elton and Steve had approached George Martin, who had agreed to produce the second album and yet he had a condition which was that he be allowed to orchestrate it to arrange it and that I mean it sounds fairly unbelievable but it's possible apparently it didn't sit well with Steve and Elton and in the end they decided to pull away from that Um, I could see why Although, you know, you think that associating yourself with George Martin would be a pretty good move at that time. George Martin would have been very closely linked with Dick James and he was a strong character in his own right. And I think Elton and everyone else involved, Steve, wanted to have some measure of control over what they were going to produce. And they weren't going to get as much control 
working closely with someone like George Martin under the thumb of Dick James. So that's why, in the end, possibly through Steve Brown's radio connections, they Steve went via Tony to get hold of the young the young gun, Paul Buckmaster. And with Paul on board, they had the chance to uh, stamp what they wanted all over that album. So Steve gave Buckmaster, I think this was before the 2nd of November, some uh, demos that had been recorded at Dick James by Clive Franks to chew over. He would have given, he gave him your song. He gave him Take Me to the Pilot and he gave him 60 Years On. And Buckmaster showed some real interest. He suggested a producer, namely Gus Dudgeon. They now work together in the shape of David Bowie's second album called David Bowie not to be confused with his first album called David Bowie um, so let's have a listen to one of the songs that uh, they did for that album the village settles down undetected by the stars and the hangman plays the mandolin he goes to sleep And the last thing on his mind Is the wild-eyed boy imprisoned Neath the covered wooden shark Folds the rope into its back Blows his pipe of smoulders Blankets smoke into the room And the day will end for summer As the night begins for one So there it is, recorded in summer of 1969 Um... You've got Bowie's voice and his guitar in the centre there, where we're used to hearing Elton and his piano. But aside from that, we can hear a very confident Paul Buckmaster already, ready to to take on the project which he was offered. Um, so now we've got the whole team coming into position. We've got Elton and Bernie, Caleb still involved. Uh, here is Steve Brown I'm looking at the back of the album and Paul and Gus come in and so does Diana Lewis um, who was Paul's girlfriend at the time she played the keyboard didn't she on uh, the cage so there they are the platoon in their army fatigues I say that because uh, Elton at Gus's funeral famously described the process of recording that album as like an army manoeuvre with Gus as the sergeant major. And there they are on the back, ready for battle. The album was planned over several months and it was recorded very quickly and uh, with Elton playing and singing live in January 1970. That is a story for another podcast. I'm not going to go into detail about how the album was planned and arranged, but there's a lot to be said about that. But... Instead of just finishing it there, um, let's hear something of Buckmaster's contribution to that album. 
Um, we will finish up with a full song this time um, and one of the many on the album that bears a really massive imprint from Buckmaster. Before I play that, let me say that uh, um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you have, don't forget to press the subscribe button in whatever software you're using. Do so and there will be more delights to come. The next planned episode is... Uh, DJM Demos 1967 to 1968 I'm going to try to put together well, I'm not going to sequence it or anything but I'm going to try to put together the the album that was recorded by Caleb and presented to a faintly baffled Steve Brown in 1968 and we're going to have a listen to some of those early early recordings so until then Enjoy in full with uh, it, the album length buzzy buzzy introduction 60 years on.
to believe 